So last term literary studies. So those of you who, who are here for something else, um, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Um, right, so uh, what we're going to do is, is quite a, a simple format. We're just going to have uh, a brief introduction from me, uh, followed by uh, short um, com uh, sort of position statements from each of our speakers, and I'll introduce uh, them in turn in a minute. Um, <coughs> the idea is for this to be a free-flowing conversation, hopefully. Um, I didn't ask for, you know, fully formed research papers. This is all kind of work in progress. Um, I was hoping that a, a conversation might develop, um, not just between the panel, but also uh, with, with the audience as well. So, um, you know, listen attentively and, and your questions will be more than, more than welcome. Um, right, good. So, in the preface to Don Quixote, Cervantes recounts his friend's advice on what might make a book a success. You have no business, this is a quote, you have no business to go begging sentences of philosophers, passages of holy writ, poetical fables, rhetorical orations, or miracles of saints, but only to endeavour, with plainness and significant, decent and well-ordered words, to give your periods a pleasing and harmonious turn, expressing the design in all you advance, without being intricate or obscure. Endeavour also that by reading your history, the melancholy may be provoked to laugh, the gay humour be heightened, and the simple not tired, that the judicious may admire the invention, the grave not undervalue it, nor the wise forbear commending it. In a broad sense, I think, the, the advice describes the pleasures one may have in reading a novel. No more are we going to be interested in exemplary lives, nor in holy writ, but rather in writing which might be plainly and harmoniously expressed contributing towards some design. The result could be an admiration of craft, that is, judicious may admire the, inv the invention, or an understanding of the intelligence of the work, nor the wise forbear commending it. But strikingly, it may also provoke the melancholy to laugh, to heighten, quote, the gay humour. Today, we're going to be exploring the relationship between laughter and the mode of literary understanding known as literary studies. If it seems uncontroversial to suggest that we, are, that we are interested in how authors give their writing a pleasing and harmonious turn, sorry, pleasing and harmonious turn, and to say that we are not, sorry, and say that we are interested in some way of appraising the wisdom of literary thought and commending it or, or not, um, it seems far more stretched to say that many of us who have thought at length about literature have thought about how our work may bring the melancholy to laugh, how it may heighten the gay humour of our lives. Is literary studies irredeemably serious? Can it understand laughter without converting it into something else, something perhaps considerably more banal, something more like a limited form of wisdom? The three speakers we have today are Patrick Hayes, Hugh Marsh, and Julia Jordan. Um, I'd like to thank Julia in particular uh, for stepping in at short notice. Uh, Julia is a, is a lecturer in English at UCL. Her first monograph was Chance and the, British, uh, and the Modern British Novel. She has published widely on various aspects of post-war literature, and in particular experimental fiction of the 1960s, and edited the unpublished works of B.S. Johnson. She has just finished her second monograph, congratulations, Thanks. Um, <laughs> which will be called Oblique Strategies, Late Modernism and the Avant-Garde British Novel. Hugh Marsh is lecturer in modern and contemporary literature in the Department of English at Queen Mary uh, here in London. He is the author of uh, Beryl Bainbridge uh, out of Liverpool University Press and is currently writing a monograph entitled The Comic Turn in Contemporary British Fiction, Who's Laughing Now? Patrick Hayes is a fellow of St John's College, Oxford, 
where he teaches literature and English from the 18th century to the present day. He's the author of Jane Kutzea and the novel, and Philip Roth, Fiction and, Fiction and Power. And he's also the co-editor of Beyond the Ancient Quarrel, which is a work that looked at Jane Kutzea uh, and the discipline of philosophy. He's currently working on a history of life writing in the post-war period. So, how about we start? <coughs> I think the order might be Patrick, then Hugh, then Julia, if that's okay. Um, we're okay with that? All right. Great. Okay. Okay, I'll, I'll kick off. Can, can everyone see the, the handout? Uh, just a couple of extracts from Foucault. So that my very short paper, which is written at Andrew's request, um, is entitled Foucault's Laughter. Um, and Andrew, I should preface this by saying that Andrew asked us to do two things. Um, he asked us to reflect upon the relationship between literature and laughter, or the literary and laughter, and, and also he asked us to to think about, um, if I can if I can remember, um, why literary study seems to have a hard time with laughter. So I'll, I'll come to that at the end. So I'm going to focus on Foucault's magnum opus, The Order of Things. This is a difficult and often, at least to my reading, obscure text that's not known for its jokes or for its discussion of literature. Foucault's aim was to examine the background assumptions that underpin the changing forms of the episteme, as he called it. This is the dominant way in which knowledge is structured at any given time. He excavates the changes in the episteme in three phases. The medieval system of correspondences, classical rationalism, up to the rise of modern historicism in the 19th and early 20th centuries. He concluded by anticipating the demise of the modern episteme and with a great apocalyptic flourish at the end by heralding the end of man along with it. That's a grand book. I'm going to quote from the preface where Foucault claims that his whole effort to excavate, to give the, to give the history, the unconscious history of, of the dominant episteme, and thereby in some sense to escape the terms of that way of structuring knowledge, he says that all that was inspired, that whole project was inspired by the laughter provoked by uh, Jorge Luis Borges's short story, The Analytical Language of John Wilkins. And I'll quote from Foucault. This book, The Order of Things, first arose out of a passage in Borges, out of the laughter that shattered, as I read the passage, all the familiar landmarks of my thought, our thought that bears the stamp of our age and our geography, breaking up all the ordered surfaces and all the planes with which we are accustomed to tame the wild profusion of existing things, and continuing long afterwards to disturb and threaten with collapse our age-old distinction between the same and the other. This passage quotes a certain Chinese encyclopedia. Actually, he's downplaying that. The, the, the book is entitled 
the heavenly emporium of celestial knowledge. I don't know why he downplays that, but he does. It, it quotes this, this heavenly emporium, in which it is written that, and here he's quoting Borges in his own translation, animals are divided into A, belonging to the emperor, B, embalmed, C, tame, D, suckling pigs, E, sirens. That, that word is in fact sirenas in, in Spanish, which might also be translated as mermaids. Fabulous, fab or fabulous ones. G, stray dogs. H, those that are included in the present classification. I, frenzied. And, and, that, and that's a somewhat odd translation. Um, the Spanish is que se agitan como locos. Uh, those that tremble as if they were mad is the most literal rendering of that. He frenzied, all right. J, innumerable. K, drawn with a very fine camel hair brush. L, etc. M, those that have just broken the water pitcher. He, he doesn't get the verb sense quite right there. Those that have just done that. N, that from a long way off look like flies. In the wonderment of this taxonomy, the thing we apprehend in one great leap, the thing that, by means of the fable, is demonstrated as the exotic charm of another system of thought, is the limitation of our own, the stark impossibility of thinking that. So that's the, this is the first page of this book. Now Foucault's laughter derived, he claimed, not simply from the oddity of unusual juxtapositions, his phrase. It's not, it's not simply that oddity. The laughter's related to what he calls an unthinkable space that Borges's list opens up. An unthinkable space. And this shattering laughter, as he thinks of it, was productive. Borges's short story had the power, Foucault claims, to inaugurate the intellectual voyage that is the order of things. Its imagined impossibility called forth an otherwise impossible form of writing, that, that book that we are now reading. So as these, as these opening thoughts of Foucault's might suggest, literature actually plays a, an important, if, if, if rather submerged, role in the order of things. Foucault starts writing about literary texts at odd and unexpected moments in this book. They come in as sort of like queer digressions. Uh, he never talks about them for very long, but they're always very, very significant. And you end up thinking they're actually fundamental. At one point early on in the book, apropos of, as far as I could tell, very little indeed, he suddenly throws in the reading of Don Quixote, which Andrew's touched upon already. What he draws attention to is the way in which Cervantes' laughter in, in that novel, or the laughter of the, of the text, unsettles what he sees as the dominant 
Renaissance epistemology of language, in which, in which things of the world were thought in some sense to have a symbolic resemblance to God, that language is a system of correspondences. And I, I, this is the other passage I, I wanted you to think about. This is Foucault again. Don Quixote is a negative of the Renaissance world. Writing has ceased to be the prose of the world. That's, that's alluding to this notion of language corresponding to, to things, to intentions. Resemblance and signs have dissolved their former alliance. His whole journey is a quest for similitudes, that is to say, to join language back up to itself, to its, to its native meanings. The slightest analogies are pressed into service as dormant signs that must be reawakened and made to speak once more. Flocks, serving girls and inns become once more the language of books to the imperceptible degree to which they resemble castles, ladies and armies. A perpetually untenable resemblance which transforms a sought-for proof into derision and leaves the words of the books forever hollow. So this is Foucault on, on Quixote. Now I think there's, there's very obviously much more to be said about Don Quixote, because the role laughter plays in this book is by no means simply derisive and parodic in the way that he suggested. Right? There is Cervantes' rather Erasmian, many-sided play with the figure of the fool. Uh, there's his ironization not only of the chivalric romance figure, but also of the new forms of secular realism. And all this is vital to the way in which Don Quixote is opening up a somewhat different laughter to, to the one he's described. Uh, it inaugurates a new kind of text through this laughter, uh, one that played a great role in enabling the rise of man, whose, Foucault, whose fall Foucault would so eagerly anticipate in, in, this, in the order of things. But to say all this is really just to extend Foucault's major point about literature's power of possibility. Through its capacity to bring laughter into the order of representation, literature is in some sense released from, or is in a process of releasing itself from, the rules of the dominant episteme. It can start to play with those rules, perhaps to change the game. I think he's, he's seen that correctly about that, that book, that epoch-making book. Now, to conclude, I'll return to Andrew's question as to why literary studies seems to have a hard time with laughter. Just one thought on this, a Foucauldian thought about it. I think Foucault's answer to Andrew's question would be as follows. To establish itself as a discipline, literary studies had to take its lead from what the... From what Foucault thought of as the dominant episteme of the modern period, and he defined that as historicism. Literary studies tends to assimilate literature to a form of historical interpretation, offering accounts of its unconscious causes, whether those causes be in literary tradition, in human psychology, or in sociological institutional contexts. In doing so, it tends to repress the form of knowledge 
or perhaps anti-knowledge in, in his terms, that's generated by literature itself. So the Foucauldian irony here is that this repression of literature's shattering laughter is simultaneously the strength of literary studies. It's what enables literary studies as a form of knowledge production. It's what allows it to flourish in the modern academy. Yet at the same time, that repression is its weakness. It's its weakness as a way of actually engaging with literature's inaugural power. That, I think, is the ironical Foucauldian position uh, that answers your question. Um, so, Andrew gave us seven minutes um, to speak, or suggested we take seven minutes. So, in the spirit of kind of conversation and in trying to keep with that seven minutes, I've on the handout, which hopefully most, if not all of you, have got, but kind of seven, I suppose, provocations or seven statements which are overlapping and, as you'll see, frequently um, contradictory. And, but they all speak in different ways to why laughter and comedy, I think, deserve our attention and why literary studies has such a, a hard time with them. So I'll start with the first one, which is loosely on the topic of genre, and this is a quotation from John Updike. There is no need to write funny novels, he says dismissively, when life's actual juxtapositions set down attentively are comedy enough. Elsewhere in the same review, he refers to the comic, the comic novel as winsomely trivial. And I work mainly on fiction, and there's a problem, I think, with the category comic novel. I'm ranging here, you'll notice already, between kind of comedy and laughter, and I'll talk about humour at different points as well, um, but that's something we can maybe talk about. Um, so I think the image, the, the idea of comic novel conjures up maybe pictures of Tom Sharp novels from the 80s with kind of cartoon images of buxom women being leered over by kind of red-faced middle-aged men. And I think that's the type of comic fiction, the type of um, comic novel that Updike is thinking about here. And on this view, laughter and humour are a side product, are a side product, a kind of a facet of life, but not a way of living. Laughter, on this view, should inhere in serious literature, but it shouldn't be a central mode or a central intention. There's also, I think, a national angle here. This is an English form, at least um, as Updike sees it. Quotation two, also on the topic of, of genre, from Eric Siegel. Godot, he says, marks the end of the life cycle of a genre, the death of comedy. So for Siegel, at least, comedy is based on Greek and Roman models, and it dies with the intellectualism of Beckett, Ionesco, and the theatre um, of the absurd. So it's no longer associated with comedy of the body, with regeneration, uh, with festival and communality, and it ceases to exist. Now, I don't necessarily agree that comedy did die at this point, but it's perhaps true to say that the language um, that we have for the genre doesn't necessarily suit its modern forms. And what Siegel grasped is that, for the most part, comedy 
isn't a kind of co easily codifiable genre. It's more of a, a, a tonal quality, as Andrew Stott describe, describes it, or as Agnes Heller describes it, um, as having a, a family resemblance that we recognise. Um, but nevertheless, I think there is an attraction to, to comedy and to laughter. Um, and this is going on to quotation three, which is linked to, to Siegel and the idea of communality and festival. And this is a famous quotation from Bakhtin, who says that folk laughter and the carnival means the defeat of power of earthly kings, of the earthly upper classes, of all that oppresses and restricts. So on this, this Bactinian view, which was particularly kind of prevalent in criticism of the 80s and 90s, but continues to have purchase, um, the division between laughter and seriousness um, is a false one. And laughter is or can be a radical act that can bring authority to account through ridicule um, and subversion. So there's an important political function here. Um, it's kind of a way of recuperating the significance, the significance of laughter. But, according to Umberto Eco, this carnival that um, Bactine draws upon can only exist as authorised transgressions, this is quotation four. And comedy and carnival are not instances of real transgression. On the contrary, they represent paramount examples of law enforcement. So the, the double bind here is that by sanctioning laughter in recognised forms, not necessarily the carnival, perhaps in print, online, television, stage and so on, by sanctioning it, authority in fact um, contains that transgression and maintains order and the rule. This is allowable laughter and it's containable. And from a more recent perspective, but on a similar line, this is quotation five from Jonathan Coe. These days, he says, every politician is a laughing stock, and the laughter which occasionally used to illuminate the dark corners of the political world with dazzling, unexpected shafts of hilarity has become an unthinking reflex on our part, on our part a tired, Pavlovian response to situations too difficult or too depressing to think about clearly. So there's an opposition there at the end between laughter and thought or reflection. But I think it's also particularly pertinent in the contemporary moment when some argue that we're living through a kind of a golden age of satire, but it's satire against which those in authority seem to be utterly um, impervious. So laughter and mockery may feel like radical acts, but they are finally, and I'm kind of paraphrasing Co here, ineffectual and can be used as a screen behind which um, to hide a more malicious agenda. Boris Johnson is Jonathan Coe's um, primary example here in, in, this, in the essay. Um, this kind of idea of presenting this kind of bluff, bumbling exterior behind which he's clearly shielding um, you know, a deeply kind of ambitious and uh, manipulative uh, persona. But you might also think of Trump or Bolsonaro in Brazil. Um, and in all of these cases, there's been a kind of sense that these are all public figures who have been savagely satirised, but seemed utterly kind of impervious to that. So does satire, does our laughter, our mockery have any effect ultimately? 
And this is moving on more to a kind of affective and social reading of laughter. Under the sixth quotation from Michael Billig. Billig. It's easy, Billig says, to praise humour for bringing people together in moments of pure creative um, enjoyment, but it's not those sorts of moments that constitute the social core of humour. The social core of laughter in the book is laughter and ridicule. But instead, it is the darker, less easily admired practice of ridicule. So, at a social and affective level, there's also no agreement about laughter's role. For Billig, positivist accounts, laughter as beneficial, as even as therapeutic. Um, positive accounts ignore the fact that it is more usually associated with social control and schadenfreude rather than anything more positive. Although, and I'll conclude on a, on, on with the seventh quotation on a more upbeat note, for Anka Pavlescu, who's drawing on Bataille here, she says, laughter produces a fragile, formless unity. There is no partition between laughers as long as the laughter lasts. Last. So again, there's that sense of kind of transitoriness of, um, um, of something that doesn't last, but it can be a profound act of communication. For Bataille, despite his reputation, he kind of prefers a, what Pavlescu describes as a laughing orgy to a sexual orgy, as a kind of a mode of communication and, and oneness. And Pavlescu, this quotation also brings me full circle um, back to the questions of genre that I started with. Because for her, in her book on laughter, part of the problem is that laughter has historically been bracketed off from true emotions. In that kind of passage, um, or that movement from passions to emotions, um, Laughter kind of didn't make the cut as a, as a true emotion. It's always a sign of something else. And the language that we have to discuss laughter has become um, impoverished in the way that other forms of, um, of affect haven't. So to summarise, to, uh, to wrap up, these seven provocations, to summarise these seven provocations, comedy presents a problem in generic terms both because it can be dismissed as trivial and unseriousness and in a contemporary context because it doesn't necessarily fit the, the language of genre we have to describe it. Politically, it's sometimes viewed as radical, but that perceived radicalism can equally be viewed as a tool of authority, um, as a kind of licensed transgression. However, it can also be a source of connection and profound joy for which we have yet, perhaps, to um, develop an appropriate descriptive or critical lexicon. And to state my own position, it's these contradictions and uh, misunderstandings that account, in part at least, for the hard time that literary studies has with laughter. Um, but these, I think, are also what make it such a valuable topic. Um, Humour, and I'm, I'm particularly um, I'm especially interested in, in comic laughter, of course there are other forms, um, is profoundly situational, subjective um, and contradictory. And literary studies as a discipline develops precisely the skills needed to understand this situatedness, subjectivity um, and contradiction, whatever particular critical persuasion one might be um, approaching it from. Um, I'll finish there, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, it's lovely to be here. Um,
Can everybody hear okay? Yeah. Um, I, I'm very heartened to realise that I'm following both of my fellow panellists in delivering quite an, not that funny paper. <laughs> <laughs> no offence. Um, <laughs> but uh, I've called my paper Accidents, Jokes and Art, which is an allusion to one of my favourite all-time essays, which is Frank Kermode's 1967 essay, Objects, Jokes and Art, where he basically spends the time puzzling away at his own difficulty in distinguishing avant-garde writing and art, uh, and particularly what he calls the neo-avant-garde. His difficulty in distinguishing this form of art from a joke. So he talks specifically uh, about Dada, about Duchamp, about Robert Rauschenberg, about the collage texts of the 1950s and 60s. Um, he's talking in 67 particularly about the British avant-gardists, including um, B.S. Johnson, Alan Burns, uh, people like Tom Phillips, whose sort of art literature hybrids uh, were starting to emerge at this point. He's talking about Samuel Beckett's aleatory experiments. Um, and his essay is part of a dialogue that had been going on about Ping, in particular, uh, Beckett's um, particularly difficult text. Um, so one of, the, one of the problems that Commode has with this neo-avant-garde um, is this yoking together of disparate elements that he finds in both avant-garde art and literature and the pun mechanism. And he's trying desperately to distinguish between the two. He says uh, at one point, I myself believe, and uh, you can detect some anxiety in this, I myself believe that there is a difference between art and a joke, while admitting that it has sometimes recently been difficult to tell. Um, so I'm interested in this particular intersection today in response to Andrew's uh, question. The avant-garde of this period seemed to uh, be particularly preoccupied with invoking the mechanisms of the collage, uh, the mechanisms of dispersed attention for the reader in particular as a kind of aesthetic value. It assumes a few things. Of course, it assumes a certain skittishness in the reader, a certain blankness or indifference. And Commode talks specifically about this blankness or indifference that uh, we need in the face of avant-garde art that he says becomes its own sort of egoism in response. So I want to draw a connection between the accidental, the aleatory, and humour, this idea that the pun is very close to these forms of art. Um, so what is funny about accidents or the accidental is one of my questions. Um, not much I'm going to propose, <laughs> or rather uh, accidents, we might include pratfalls, puns, as I've spoken about, uh, slip-ups. These sorts of things provoke a certain kind of ambivalent laughter, which is historically produced, uh, which is accidental in various types of ways, I would say, and which becomes folded into the uh, distinctive character and effective potency of late modernism itself. 
an effective patency that you might recognise when you think about the kind of art and writing that I'm talking about. It's deadpan silliness, it's proclivity to collision and violence, it's attraction to these sorts of modes, it's excitability, it's melancholy. And I'm thinking about not just the collage people that I've mentioned, but also early ballad, things like that, as well as kind of the more obvious pop art in America would, would maybe fit into this as well. This very particular kind of tonal shift that we get in this period. So the writing is what I'm most interested in. And as I said, it often invokes puns, visual juxtapositions. It has a particular reliance on contingency. It's attracted to the gratuitous, the useless. In all of these ways, um, we might think about how humour works as a different sort of gratuitousness, as a different sort of gift, or a kind of gracefulness in its own sort of opting out of any kind of use that we might put it to, right? These are texts that we find harder to use, to immerse ourselves in, to get something from. And this is often a reaction to experimental writing of the period. I can't get anything from it. It doesn't offer itself up to me um, in a way that might put it into a kind of economy of, of what we as readers might do. So, the gratuitousness of humour is linked to the gratuitousness of accidental or experimental art, is what I'm saying here. The pratfall and gravity is always at, in play. Gravity, of course, is supposedly funny because it pulls us down, it might land on our head, it might trip us up in some way. Humour might occur, then, at a moment of radical contingency, Samuel Beckett's writing, famously, as an example with which people might be most familiar, um, and I was interested to hear you talk about Godot as the limit point of humour, the death of humour, perhaps. And I mean, I, as my own slight provocation here, I would say that, you know, when, when we think about whether or not we've done humour a disservice, I would say that sometimes it, dis, it deserves to be treated in that way. And Beckett's writing might give us an example of that where your heart sinks in a seminar on Beckett when the students say, ah, oh, but you haven't really spoken about how it's actually really funny. And you think, well, that's not necessarily the most profound thing we can say about Beckett. And I think that does remain true, no matter how much we wish to defend humour, it remains true. Samuel Beckett's writing is preoccupied with humour in a more complicated way than that, than making us laugh, right? It's preoccupied with gravity, with dissent and assent, with fixing oneself to the spot so as not to fall over for reasons of compulsion, with the circumlocutionary logic of the compass and the constellation. I'm thinking of play, the play All That Fall in particular, but also the particularly hapless narrators of the trilogy. Beckett's falling is a means of submitting oneself to the vagaries of chance. It's not particularly funny is what I'm saying here. It's what befalls us. This concern with falling runs very deeply through his praise, his metaphoric and linguistic structures, of course. Um, and of course, falling over in this way, what befalls us is deeply etymologically imprinted in the very notion of chance. But chance events and unpredictable swerves and accidental collisions that interrupt a fall are to be endured. And this is what I mean by being against the reading of humour in his work. I think it is, perhaps, 
the death of comedy. Andrew H. Miller, in his book on 19th century realism, asked, why do we defend ourselves from surprise and how might, how might we stop? I like Miller's notion of surprise as necessarily a sort of aesthetic good, that we might always be trying to make ourselves defend surprise as a kind of moral and aesthetic good. And I suppose my slight provocation here was to say that that might not always be true. Beckett's humour is of the difficult sort, that is, humour that reveals itself at the very moment of its operation to not be very funny. The shattering laughter, perhaps, that Patrick mentioned. A shattering laughter that exposes literature's own incommensurability with itself. As Patrick said, Foucault's laughter derived from what he called the unthinkable space that Borges's text proposed. So humour's ability to unsettle epistemology, as Patrick put it, finds a correlate, and I'm just wrapping up almost here, this finds a correlate in Jacques Rancière's extraordinary work of literary criticism, The Lost Thread. Um, Rancière talks a bit about Joseph Conrad, and he quotes his famous letter to T. Fisher Unwin. This is from four years before the 20th century began. Conrad writes, Like a dream, a work of literature may be ludicrous or tragic, and like a dream, pitiless and inevitable, a thing monstrous or sweet, from which you cannot escape. Our captivity within the incomprehensible logic of accident is the only fact of the universe. This is an extraordinary statement, um, and it's particularly useful for Rancière, particularly because this incomprehensible logic is inevitable, the incomprehensible logic of the accident. Everything is possible, he says, but the note of truth is not in the possibility of things, but in their inevitability. So this point, which is shared by Conrad and Rancière, turns on the profound truth of inevitability once locked into the logic of accident. And this, I want to draw a parallel between this and the terrifying compulsion to laugh at things that aren't particularly funny once we get locked into this inevitable structure. Accident, for Rancière, reveals the truth of the real. It belongs to the realm of the real where a dreamlike inevitability supervenes. Rather than that of the possible, where anything might happen, the realm of humour in the way we might understand it. Accident is what is being groped towards then as that which reveals the real, not the real of realism, but the notional category of what lies beyond the correlation between the empirical and the perceiving subject. So, Boncière concludes this bit by saying to produce a work of art a man must either know or feel that truth even without knowing it so I want to bring us back here to this limit of what can be known which is sort of at the base of some of the humour that I've been talking about for Beckett as for Rancière the novel must eventually well literature must eventually illuminate the punctuation of the encounter with the inconceivable and it's in the face of this encounter with the inconceivable that it all is reduced to this kind of empty laughter. We are back at the limits of what can or can't be known. So just as Adorno writes famously of taste as the thing which extinguishes itself at the moment of its operation, like right? the moment you recognise that you are exercising your taste, 
it is no longer tasteful and it kind of disappears in a puff of smoke. Humour at the moment of its operation, especially in Beckett, I would say, and the avant-garde art that Commode is talking about at the beginning of my talk, humour at the moment of its operation exposes something equally uncomfortable. The fact that we never quite know what we're laughing at. We are trapped inside the incomprehensible logic of the accident. Thank you. So thank you very much for three great papers. Um, I'll just give a, a short response, but I, I realise that this is you know, it's one of those things that you, you write and then, and then realise how incredibly strange it is, so um, bear with me. I think maybe just to preface this, I should say um, what it is that I, I work on, which is, which is comedy jokes, specifically Jewish jokes, and how that comes into the novel, or at least that's what I'm doing at the moment. Um, so over the last few months I've been reading a lot of joke books, you know, some of them of high repute, like the one by Devorah Baum, recently called The Jewish Joke, and some of very low repute, um, you know, sort of the kind of things you'll find uh, in bargain bins and, and waterstones. Um, yes, and another one called Jokes from the Foundation of the State of Israel, which is another you know, laugh-a-minute um, kind of material. So, um, so I'll just tell two jokes in response to this, and then, and then I'll, I'll think a little bit more. Another thing that makes this quite an unusual activity is that is that reading out a joke in an academic seminar off the paper is not generally how you tell jokes, but anyway, here we are. So here's the first one. By the way, of these two jokes, one is definitely not funny, and one maybe is funny, depending on how you feel. Um, so here's the first joke, one that Freud loves to retell, and he tells it a number of times, I think three or four, in jokes and their relation to the unconscious. So it goes like this. A Galatian Jew was travelling in a train. He had made himself really comfortable, had unbuttoned his coat, and put his feet up on the seat. Just then, a gentleman in modern dress entered the compartment. The Jew promptly pulled himself together and took up a proper pose. The stranger fingered through the pages of a notebook, made some calculations, reflected for a moment, then suddenly asked the Jew, Excuse me, when is Yom Kippur? Aho, said the Jew, and put his feet up on the seat before answering. Is that not... I'm, su I'm surprised I'm not hearing uproarious laughter from the audience. <laughs> Um, now, for a number of reasons, this joke doesn't really travel that well. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, can you imagine if I just told that joke to you as if it was got, and, and looked up at you in anticipatory, you know, where's the laughter, anyway? Yeah, so the joke doesn't travel well. You know, there's a way of understanding it. Um, the joke's about the hidden Jew, right? There's a way of understanding it through anti-Semitism. The Jew is naturally fleshy and craven, and it's only in polite Gentile society that he has to police his desires. Um, that, that's one way of understanding that, that joke. Freud says this joke works by illusion, in that putting your feet up on the seat represents a wider cultural understanding. He, he says that um, the joke relies on a powerfully democratic sense amongst Jews of simply being one, uh, you know, being one, who one is. So once they realise what each other, you know, once they reveal themselves to each other, you can put your feet up, you're comfortable. So the insiders, Freud says, are laughing at one thing, and, and I would say the outsiders are laughing, or in this case, not laughing, <laughs> at another. Um, whatever the case, yeah, it's still not that funny. So uh, there's another logic working in the joke, and it's brought out, I think, by this version. Um, a woman gets onto a train and sees a man reading a newspaper. She turns to him and she says, excuse me, sir, are you, are you Jewish? And he says, no, 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 
I'm not Jewish. She says, oh, okay. A few minutes pass. She turns to him again and says, excuse me, sir, are you, are you sure you're not Jewish? And he says, no, 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 I'm not Jewish. She says, oh, okay. Ten minutes pass. She turns to him again and says, are you, are you sure you're not Jewish? And he says, fine, 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 yes, you win, yes, fine, I'm Jewish. She says, yeah, funny, you don't look Jewish. <laughs> now, I love that joke. Um, really, this whole seminar was an attempt to be able to you know, bring you into my comic book. <laughs> but what's, what's funny, I think, about that joke, at least to some people, is, <laughs> is the particular form of hiding um, that might be undertaken in order not to be seen. Uh, a form of hiding, though, that might reveal distinctive traces, right? So you're seeing somebody in a particular way, but you're only seeing it because of what they're hiding. Um, so at one level, it's absolutely incongruous. You're asked to think two things at the same time. You're asked to think that the person, that she knows that he is Jewish because uh, he doesn't look it, right? Um, but at another level, it makes perfect sense. As Deborah Baum writes about this particular joke, who but a Jew would dream of showing so little sign of it? <laughs> Let's have it, yeah. So, I'll, oh, that, that is my way of, one way of responding. I'll, I'll respond a little more formally as well. Um, all of these papers have in some way or another developed the thought that the form of knowledge known as literary studies is not able to manage the materials presented by the literary experience in particular of laughter. So for, for Patrick, um, this is a consequence of the dominant historicism of literary studies. This leads, he said, to a tendency to, quote, assimilate literature to a form of historical interpretation offering an account of its unconscious causes. At least he said that in, a, in, a, in the pre-circulated paper. I take him to mean here that literature is converted into, so, into something else, internal to kinds of understanding that modern forms of knowledge are able to produce. Hence the suggestion that there might be a repression of a form of knowledge in literary studies. That might be its anti-knowledge. Literature, and particularly literary experiences of laughter, um, might be literary studies other. The thing that makes what we do possible as a form of knowledge production, but which might otherwise haunt all of these undertakings as limited. Julia's approach develops a set of thoughts, in, in a way not that dissimilar, I think. Her focus is, a, is a bit on a particular kind of laughter, she calls it ambivalent laughter, which she says is folded into the distinctive character of, and affective potency of late modernism. Folded in is an interesting phrase there. Yet again, we find ourselves up against the limit of knowledge. Um, just as Adorno writes of taste as the thing which extinguishes itself at the moment of its operation, uh, humour humor does the same, effectively. Um, what I take her to mean here is that if ambivalent laughter is embedded in the moods and strategies of late modernist fiction, then that leaves us in the difficult position of trying to describe something which, once we paid attention, refuses to reveal itself. It might be a particular kind of hiding, right? What we're left clutching at is a series of epiphenomena, a series of accidents. Now, I think, uh, sorry, a Hughes paper uh, focused on, on three things. This is, I think, slightly different from the other two. That genre, politics, and affect coming together, mm. right? But the point, again, here is about instability. If you, if you might be able to describe other, other genres or other kind of literary affects um, or some kind of determinate politics, each time we try to say one thing about laughter, one thing about comedy, it's doing something else, right? Mm. So we, we, um, you know, 
we might want to attach to laughter the power of satire. We had we had Zuna here, you know, to satirize the satirize the great and good and to bring them down, right? To to expose their corruption and do some other kind of work with it. Um, but then we've also got the laughter of the alt right, the laughter of those frog memes, um, which I don't find terribly funny, but they're used to insult and humiliate and ridicule. Um, we might we might think of um, we might want to say about the genre of comedy that it's uh, that it's bringing about a certain kind of joy in its audience, but of course we don't need to look that far to find examples of of, of it doing something actually significantly more uh, ambivalent, right? Uh, we can, I, I can go on. So I think there is actually quite a, a strong connection between all three of these papers. Um, so returning to the jokes which I started, in, the, in these jokes, I think, uh, there might be a theory of why it is that literary studies struggles with laughter. Are those awkward, ambivalent experiences we have in response to both seeing and not seeing something? and finding ourselves both called and not called to answer for the best and worst within ourselves. Is that what literary laughter does? Might these be its pleasures and its consequences for knowledge? An endless unsettling of what we think we might know. And if that's the case, what might we think about the stakes of laughter as it moves out of the literary realm um, and into the public? The laughter that we might have when we see Theresa May dancing. the laughter of certain kinds of hostile memes, the laughter of uh, someone like Zuna, as I said, aimed at puncturing the fantasies of corrupt governments. This is just a series of provocations that maybe we can begin to respond to. But thank you all very much for, for the great paper.